Hello, I'm Michael Liebreich, and this is Cleaning Up. The origins of New Energy Finance, now Bloomberg New Energy Finance, go all the way back to 2003, when my co-founder, Boskert Ijinolu, and I were looking for data on venture investment in something called the hydrogen economy. We couldn't find any reliable databases of deals, investors, and portfolio companies, so we created our own. Quite quickly, we decided that what was happening was a bubble in hydrogen and fuel cells. Some things are not new, but we broadened our coverage to other clean energy sectors and to other types of finance, and the rest is history. Fast forward to today, however, it's still hard to get good data on venture and private investment in climate technology. My guest this week is Kim Zhou, CEO and co-founder of Climate Tech VC. Launched in 2020, CTVC created one of the leading newsletters on climate innovation with 50,000 weekly readers. Kim has also been tracking and logging private investment deals in the space and identifying trends, and has just released her analysis of activity in the first half of 2023. Please welcome Kim Zhou to Cleaning Up. Before we start, if you're enjoying Cleaning Up, please make sure that you like, subscribe and leave a review. That really helps other people to find us. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to us on YouTube or your favourite podcast platform and follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram to participate in the discussion. Also, you can visit cleaningup.live to access over 160 hours of conversations with extraordinary climate leaders and you can subscribe to our free newsletter. That's cleaningup.live. Cleaning Up is brought to you by our lead supporter, Capricorn Investment Group, the Liebreich Foundation, and the Gillardini Foundation. So, Kim, welcome to Cleaning Up. Thanks, Michael. Excited to be on here. So, let's start where we always start. Can you describe uh, what it is that you do in your own words? I've done an intro. I've probably got it wrong. So, who are you? What do you do? Awesome. So, I'm Kim. I'm the CEO and co-founder of CTVC, which stands for Climate Tech VC. Uh, started off as a newsletter tracking what was happening in the climate tech space with over 50,000 subscribers. Uh, and now we're building out and expanding into a market intelligence platform on climate tech. So our mission really is to accelerate the deployment of climate tech. And we do that by providing clarity on what's actually happening in this space. So tracking the flows of money. Tracking the flows of money. Also curating perspectives from leading founders, investors, thought leaders in this space. So we've had on the newsletter folks like Jigger Shaw, um, you know, Rob from Monolith Materials, and then uh, do a lot of deep dive reporting ourselves. So we've covered topics from battery recycling to sustainable seafood to um, uh, carbon removal in markets. So this really resonated, and I've been tracking what you've been up to for a few years, but it resonated because if you go back in time, 2003, uh, I was becoming more and more interested in, at the time, it was uh, hydrogen and fuel cells were going through one of their periodic sort of moments in the spotlight. And there was no good data. There was no good information. And so I started some spreadsheets with my co-founder and um, kind of the rest is history. Um, so I have a kind of, I do under, I understand a lot of what you're doing in the background. And, uh, and I thought it was kind of fun to revisit that. Um, the spur for this was actually, um, you are the co-founder. Who are your other co-founders or co who's your other co-founder or co-founders? Yes, good. It's a good story. So we've told this a couple of times. I started CTVC as a newsletter back at the beginning of 2020. And similar to you, this was because it felt like there was going to be this second or third, whatever you want to call it, 2.0, 3.0 wave of clean tech, climate tech. Um, it was also around the time of the pandemic, right? So, you know, everyone was at home. People were recognizing that there is a potential for a global crisis, that that could happen. Um, and I personally was really kind of uh, always a climate person, but wanted to look at this from more of a innovation technology perspective than just a crisis one. So started this newsletter uh Two weeks, three weeks later, I ended up meeting this woman, Sophie Purdom, um, who I, I, I started the newsletter with, essentially. So her and I connected through this wonderful professor, uh, Kerry Krasinski, who's a professor of sustainable finance. He's been a real thought leader in the space. And the two of us, I was coming at it more from an energy perspective. Sophie was coming at it more from a food and ag perspective, since she had helped uh, start a company called Kula Bio. 
And uh, both of us started this newsletter, 2020. We dedicated our, you know, very, we, we turned this into a very passionate side hustle where the two of us with a cohort of, of interns were basically running and building this newsletter on the side for three and a half years. We put out an issue every Monday, tracking the deals, the news that happened in the week. And then we put out a deep dive every Friday. And we've been doing that for three and a half years on the side. Um, and then about a year ago, um, and, and I'll go more into how the how this all came about, but about a year ago, um, we were reaching, you know, 40 40,000 plus subscribers on the newsletter. And all of a sudden, it wasn't just a newsletter anymore. You know, we had corporates reading this, we had investors reading this, they were emailing us asking, can I double click behind, you know, the report you just put out? And we thought, huh, I thought, huh, there's, there's more here than just putting out a free newsletter. And also it was taking a good chunk of time to put it out. Um, Coincidentally, I ended up meeting Mark Taylor, whom you know, from BNF days. And uh, I think he had just left BNF at the time. We started talking over Zoom. I was in San Francisco. He was in London. And we just immediately hit it off. I think he saw the opportunity for this new wave of climate tech, of, of the climate transition. And how do we better provide more data, more clarity into what's happening in this space beyond, you know, the newsletter sort of uh, platform. So the two of us have been working together as co-founders now building out this side of the business. Um, Sophie continues to stay on and is active with the newsletter. Uh, and she she has some exciting news recently about launching her own independent venture fund. So I, th- there are just so many points of sort of uh, similarity between what I was doing back yeah. in 2002, three, four, even to the point where you said a bunch of interns. Yep. So New Energy Finance was almost entirely intern powered. Mark, I don't know if he joined as an intern. He may well have because he's got this incredible background in biochemistry and uh, I think it's, is it biochemistry? It's certainly something um, something like that. He's got a PhD. Yeah. Um, I don't know if he joined as an intern, but we were, you know, I was training interns to hammer deals into a database yeah. uh, back in 2003, so uh, 2004, certainly. So uh, a very similar, and of course, these things take over and yeah. you kind of want to do a better and better job and you want to slice and dice more accurately and build a taxonomy so that you can actually uh, spot some trends and so on. And, and it kind of takes over your life, doesn't it? And it all, it all started pretty organically too, you know, it, the intention here was never to build a massive database of companies. It was really what's happening in the climate tech space. Let's start tracking it. At the time, there was no taxonomy, right? There's, you know, clean energy, there's renewables, there's EVs, but there was no way of coalescing that all together into what we now call climate tech. And so really at the start of 2020, what we had to do was define it. We had to define what this taxonomy was. It's more than just solar and wind. It's more than just, you know, Tesla and EVs. It's energy, transportation, built environment, industrials, we're really thinking of it as a theme and not just an industry. So we built a whole framework for how we think about that. So I brought your gift. Um, So we've got a lot of people will be listening on the podcast. They won't be able to see this, but those who are watching uh, on YouTube might be able to see this is New Energy Finance. Global Renewable Energy and Energy Technology Survey. It's a survey of VCs, of, of, of VC deals, VC-backed companies, VCs. And it's Q4 2004. It is October 2004. And, you know, it was all about trying to get across the, the what is the whole space? What is, at this point, it was renewables and energy technology, but now you're taking this broader lens. So your taxonomy would include things like carbon removal and that we'd never heard of and, and, and on the food and ag yeah. side of things we absolutely didn't go there yeah. but we were doing the exact same thing and I'll, I'll give you, that's a that's a copy for you of a historic document um but the spur for this conversation was um that mark mark taylor who's now you refer to him as a co-founder yeah. even though he's just kind of later co-founder yeah. um he reached out to me and said that you have just released your uh, first half 2023 figures yeah. and um, and that they're interesting and that we should talk about that as uh, not just a kind of a window into you building a business in climate tech tracking, but yeah. also as what is actually happening out there in the kind of in the real in the real economy. So yeah. what did you what are what did you find for the first half of this year? Yeah, I mean, I think this first half of 2023, it was it was a big marquee report. We've been putting these out every single year since we started, but this was kind of the first sign of the climate tech venture market slowing down. So, you know, uh, readers of the newsletter will know that 2021, 
beginning of 2022, we saw a real peak in funding, $40 billion of capital into climate tech venture, both in 21 and 2022. Could you, can I interrupt just to get you to define venture? Because yeah. there's venture, there's private equity yeah. going into growth companies, there's private equity going into platforms of yes. por uh, portfolios of, of projects. And, you know, certainly, as I said, going back to 2000, and I've got the proof, yeah. 2003, 2004, we were slicing and dicing and making sure that we weren't sort of creating one bucket for everything. And I think you're doing some of that as well. Yeah. So that's, that's a great question. And, and I think the line, we've battled with this a few times, right? Because the line between growth and private equity all starts to get pretty blurry. So this report specifically encapsulates venture capital and growth equity. And we define that as, you know, private markets funding towards towards companies, towards early stage startups, late stage startups, but primarily it's towards the corporate as opposed to towards the project. Um, so it's corporate level funding uh, driven by venture, uh, private private markets investors. Let's, um, before we come back to the the first half 2023, yeah. I think it's worth unpacking this because the audience here, some of them are, of course, venture capitalists. They'll know all this and they'll be kind of, they can go off and make a cup of tea at this point. But some, you know, we've got um, civic society folks, we've got policymakers, yeah. we've got people who are not that familiar. Um, so the, the venture capital, when you, you know, what is your, um, what's the difference between venture capital and what and growth? Yep. So how, where do you draw the line? So venture is the earlier stuff. Yep. Uh, there might be some technology risk, yep. those sorts of things. And then growth is you've got some revenues, the company's off to the races, but it still needs capital. Is that how you think of it? Yeah, so we actually wrote an overview on this in the newsletter called the Climate Capital Stack. And of course, this is not just specific to climate, um, but we tailored it towards climate. So we think of venture capital uh, really at that early stage of a company's life cycle, right? Helping to kind of lift them off the ground. So we think, and we categorize it in alphabets, uh, as alphabet soup, right? So you have your, you, you start with your seed, um, maybe pre-seed. Then you have your series A, B, C, and the list goes on, hopefully until you get to an exit, acquisition, or IPO. And so we've defined in the report venture capital being that seed to series C stage. Of course, these definitions are evolving, um, but that's really the point in time when you're either a founder with an idea, you're figuring out product market fit, that's your seed stage. Series A, hopefully you've hit some milestones, you can try to show you know, traction and proof. And then series B is where you start to hopefully hit that inflection point, or you, you should be able to hit that inflection point, and that's how you raise a series B. And that's Especially in climate tech, especially when we're talking about hard tech, right? Building electrolyzers or, um, you know, new solar or, or battery technology. That's when you start to see those first of a kind projects or uh, technologies actually being built into the real world. So we'll definitely talk about that. But that's where we start to see a bit of a shift from early stage funding to needing that growth level funding to build your first plant or project. Now, can we add a link into the show notes to the capital stack piece that you mentioned is that if that's free to free yeah. to air then we will do that because i think that's a very very useful um uh, thing people need to understand that the capital it comes in different flavors and we need all the different flavors we need the orchestra of different instruments to play nicely together and i think a lot of um particularly people who've come through a policy environment they don't necessarily understand that there's a big difference between uh, vc and then even the project finance or um construction finance these are all very very nuanced uh pools of money definitely and that's well, we talk about the in the climate capital stack feature, but also we're starting to expand, you know, climate tech venture, climate tech VC, it's in our name, but we're really starting to expand our coverage and focus of capital. And what we like to say is, you know, venture capital can be the loudest in the room. They're on Twitter, they're on LinkedIn, but in reality, we need, uh, I think McKinsey's figures like $1 trillion of financing for the clean energy transition each year. And at the very peak, you know, climate tech venture capital is $40 billion. And so what are the other types of capital we need? A big component of that is project finance, finance to uh, build this infrastructure. Uh, so we've started putting out a lot of kind of research on that as well. Yeah, and going back to when I was, you know, literally also, yeah. you know, well, training interns or, or, or doing quality control on, yeah. on what was in the databases, what we were talking about is total investment in, uh, at the time, it was a more defined set. So it was around clean energy uh, or climate tech wasn't, didn't have all these kind of, yeah. you know, extra, even, even vehicles hadn't really taken off, yeah. right? Uh, and we were talking about, you know, figures like 150 uh, billion uh, 200 billion that was going into, and that was everything, project financings, uh, IPOs, corporate, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And the 
VC bit was 5 billion, not 40 billion, but yeah. 5 billion. And that was regarded as an enormously good year. And that was, you know, that was clean tech 1.0 was yeah. probably only when it, when it sort of zoomed up to 15 billion and then crashed again. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, the, so those are the sorts of, so we're talking about those earlier pools. What do you do with larger private equity? So if somebody does a, um, you know, injects money into a business, uh, you know, maybe maybe spins it out for, a, uh, puts in a few billion into, uh, with some debt, do you cover that? Or is that then, well, that's not really growth equity, so you kind of ignore it? So that's not covered in this specific report we just released. We really kept the boundaries to venture capital and growth, but we are tracking those big deals. So if Folks who read the newsletter um, in the deal section, we have, you know, venture funding, but we're also tracking for now we've put it in other fundings or other deals. So now we're seeing, you know, uh, if if uh, a large private equity investor like a Brookfield acquires a, a portfolio of renewable energy projects, we'll want to track that as well. But for now, that hasn't been encapsulated in the, this specific report. That's going to get really, really interesting. If you're starting to put Brookfield buying a portfolio of projects, you're getting into project finance. And I can, I mean, we should... Possibly we should talk separately about whether you even want to go there because I ended up very quickly. I mean, the reason why New Energy Finance went from me and Bozkurt in twenty in 2004 to 150 people yeah. by the time I sold to Bloomberg in 2009 was that we tried to track everything that you're talking about. And that's, a, yeah, that's a good point. And I think actually I should clarify that because I think where we where we feel like there's already a lot of maturity and where there's a lot of existing activity is tracking things like solar and wind, right? Those yeah. are definitely within climate tech, but relatively mature over the kind of venture curve. And so where we're trying to track these other sets of funding projects, but also, you know, commercial agreements is earlier stage than, than solar and wind, but kind of coming up the curve. So things like, you know, green steel or battery recycling, things that haven't yet quite reached that, you know, maturity adoption level, but will be hopefully, you know, these new sets of solar and wind coming up the curve. The problem there is you get, you know, the first couple of deals and you think, oh, well, we'll create a new, we'll change the taxonomy, we put them in, this is all great. And then suddenly it's like, oh, six more deals, 60 more deals, 600 more deals. And it's and an ever-growing database, <laughs> 100%. We started off with, you know, zero and now we're at thousands of companies and deals. I have walked miles in those shoes. Trust me, trust me. Um, no, but let's come back to the the first half because what you found as you was, you started to explain, yeah. this was the first time um, in modern history, so yeah. since sort of 2000, 2020, and it, 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 may resonate, it may resonate with those who, who uh, saw previous cycles like myself, but it was the first time that you actually saw the numbers heading down, yeah. not up. Yeah. So what was driving that? Yeah, I mean, there's probably three main things we talked about in the report. Uh, the, the obvious one is macro slowdown, right? So it's not just climate tech venture funding that's dropped, overall venture market has dropped. And in a lot of ways, climate tech venture funding was relatively insulated from the larger drop. So I think PitchBook tracked uh, over 50% decline. Uh, we tracked a 40% decline in this first half of 2023 relative to the prior year, so H1 2022. So less of a drop, still a big drop, but less of a drop. So overall market for venture capital and growth equity has slowed down. The second reason is a lot of that uh, drop that 40% decline, most of it came from growth levels of financing. So the, the, these are the bigger deals, the bigger bigger and later deals. Exactly, which intuitively makes sense since that's the largest share of, of funding. So we found that growth funding dropped 63% relative to the prior year's period. And there's a lot of reasons for that we can talk about as well. I mean, the- I'm, You're trying to do this without using the word SPAC, aren't you? I was about to get there. I was about to get there. I was going to say the exits market have closed up. Um, and, and you know, there uh, we, we actually did an exits analysis for climate tech uh, in December of 2022, because I think that's been the big question, too. Um, but yeah, we tracked 37% of exits. We tracked were SPACs. So the SPAC, just for the audience, that's the special purpose acquisition vehicle. It's a kind of fast track way of doing an IPO, um, regarded in some circles as being a bit dodgy, um, but was enormously popular in 2020, 2021, suddenly became the flavor of the moment and then sort of suddenly became not the flavor of the moment. And yeah. uh, and it had a, a quite a depressing effect on a lot across the board on, on uh, venture and tech, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was really the period of exuberance, right? And that was kind of the peak culmination of, of this exuberance where you see 
a third of the companies we tracked that were spacking were pre-revenue, pre-revenue, um, and they were going public. Yeah, and that, that means they probably couldn't have done an IPO, um, but they were able to sort of slip through this particular window. So, so you saw, so that, you know, that, that, the, um, I don't want to call it a collapse, but the, you know, the, the, the SPAC trend petering out, yeah. uh, coming back down the other side of its boom bust cycle, that, but that, What's really interesting is it also drives down the fund raisings. It's not just that it's, the, it's not just the exits that get depressed by that, but it's also the fundraisings. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think you can think of fundraising almost like a a race, right, or a journey, maybe a marathon. Let's call it. So um, the end of the race is an exit, um, and I think if if that exit, if that finish line becomes further and further and further away, it's really hard to have the energy or funding to kind of get across that finish line. But shouldn't that mean that a company needs to raise more money if the finish line is further away? From the company side, yes. From the investor side, right? Because we also have to, th- it's a two-sided marketplace funding. Um, and so from the investor side, they have their five to s- venture and taking a step back, you know, how do venture investors think or how do private markets, private uh, equity investors think? They raise a fund. They go out to LPs, limited partners, uh, can be, you know, large asset managers, can be uh, wealthy individuals, family offices, family offices yeah. exactly. And, and they go out to them with a thesis saying, I will make you a return 20% ideally plus IRR. And I will do this on a five to seven year period usually. Um, and so that's their that's their incentive coming into this. When they fund companies, they're thinking we need to make this return in a five to seven year period. And so I think what's been historically challenging with climate tech, especially companies like the ones we saw that spacked, it takes more than five to seven years to to get to a level where you can go through the traditional IPO route. Um, and so in a way, some spacks were seen as a good thing, like. Some really good companies spac you know, Lanzatech uh, went public through a SPAC and, and they're doing really well. And so it's not to say that all SPACs necessarily meant they weren't good companies. It was just a much easier route for these companies that have longer timelines to go public without having to go through the traditional IPO process. Of course, then, you know, you, you kind of see the pendulum swing to the other side and you see a lot of maybe not so good companies that should have gone public. My own involvement, I had two two companies, uh, two touch points with SPACs. Mm. One was I was an, a, um, a Series D investor mm. in ChargePoint, you know, an ABCD. I think it went to about H and then they SPACed. Mm. Great company, still, you know, uh, on the pathway to profitability, mm-hmm. uh, but they use the SPAC well yeah. uh, and are out there as a healthy company in the in the ecosystem. Yeah. The other one was a company called Swivel, which uh, was a, a mobility company, mm-hmm. uh, SPAC did a valuation of one and a half billion dollars and is now worth six million dollars. Right. And they tried to acquire a company that I uh, chair mm-hmm. and luckily, 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 the deal fell through before it was completed or we would have been completely, um, you know, so it, the, the SPAC thing was very disruptive. Um, it really, you know, that it, it really kind of threw a huge rock into the pool, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's it's it was an easier vehicle to go public. And so then you see a lot of that late stage funding pooling into the market. I mean, we tracked this 40% decline, but I think the underlying... No, no, go ahead. Go oh, ahead. I was going to say the underlying theme of it isn't necessarily, oh, it's a 40% decline from the prior year. You know, market is in a steep drop decline. It's one perspective is 2021 period, that 2021, 2022 period was actually the anomaly, right? Where we saw this $40 billion peak. In reality, the levels we're at right now, the $13 billion in the first half of 2023, parallel the levels before the peak um, at the end of 2020. So yeah, one one could say it's it's... A decline, but it's also the bubble kind of well, you, deflating yeah, a little and bit. You've got a tough because um, you've chosen a tough year to start your data sets around 2020. Uh, because of course, you know, I I have grey hairs, and I go back to 2004, yeah. and in fact, we went and all the way back to 2000, yeah. and so it sort of bounced around, and it was literally you know one or two billion. It was these t- yeah. you know what are in fact in the grand scheme of things quite tiny numbers and then you had clean tech 1.0 mm-hmm. bubble which where it went up to probably 15 billion and then it came back down to a couple of billion and it sat there for a long time so when you use numbers like 13 billion and and and, and that being normal that 
That was already, you know, 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, there was just very low levels of activity. Yeah. And it, uh, so I guess the question it raises is what, what will it go back down to now? You know, do, will, it, will it continue to sort of collapse back to five and 10 billion a year or will it sit at, you know, the sort of 20 billion, which, you know, can sustain an ecosystem, people like yourselves and so on? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point. So we did in the report, we, we put out a cumulative chart because I think that's a really important story, too. It's not just the last few quarters of funding have declined. Since 2020, we've tracked $117 billion of cumulative, you know, over the last uh, three and a half years, capital coming into the climate tech sector. And so that's an important story, too, right? It's not just that the last two quarters have declined. It's that there's overall been a lot of funding coming into the market. I think to your question on where will this go in the future, Q3 and Q4 will really be the telltale quarters. A lot of this data is noisy, right? Because you can attribute it to the larger macro market that's slowing down. If anything, you know, climate tech is slowing down less than the macro market. We're still hearing a lot of investors doing active deals. Um, So there definitely is still interest in the sector. Q3 and Q4 have historically been the peak. They've historically been the largest uh, quarters. So people come back from their summer holiday and they want to get it done by Christmas. Exactly. Right? And founders, you know, <laughs> you want to get it done before the end of the year. So I think those will be the telltale quarters. Um, I mean, one of the the key, t- uh, one of the additional tailwinds we're tracking for climate tech that I think is differentiated from other sectors is the fact that there's a bunch of, of uh, there's, there's kind of these larger public sector tailwinds. Obviously, we talk a lot about the Inflation Reduction Act and how that's driving all this geopolitical competition to be the first to be the best in, you know, decarbonization and net zero. And that's driving, uh, from the demand side, that's driving a lot of interest in these new emerging climate tech, clean technology sectors. Then there's also the private sector. And I think that's a big factor maybe we didn't see as much of in in Clean Tech 1.0, where you have all these net zero commitments that are coming out, you know, three-fourths of the Fortune 500 that have made these commitments. And it sounds like a marketing play sometimes, but at the same time, there's that demand pull from the corporates. There is nothing new in the world. What it was called back then was, um, uh, they called it uh, uh, carbon neutrality. All the yeah. corporates were saying, we're going to go... Carbon neutral. We're going to go carbon neutral. We're going to go carbon neutral. We're gonna go. And it was the marketing departments. It's yeah. very interesting. Yeah. The possible difference now is that it's the CEO and the CFO it's who are in actually involved office. in the process, at, whereas before it was just the marketing department. And it's department. at the board level now. Uh, no, obviously, this yeah. is not in every single scenario, but yeah. it's at the board level. Yeah. And I. But will it survive a recession is a very important question, because uh, last time it didn't. When, right. it got, when we got through to the financial crisis, right. you know, there were lots of companies that declared they would be carbon neutral, and it just kind of whoops, just disappeared. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest tailwind we're talking about now is is just the climate crisis itself. I think we're in a different place relative to 10, 15, 20 years ago. It's no longer, you know, 20 years ago, you can make the argument, there was still a bit of a question, right? Is climate change right. even real? And now we're seeing record-setting wildfires and heat heat, uh, uh, heat, heat waves and, and flooding. In a, in a different conversation, I could do the tailwind case and somebody else could do the headwind case. Mm-hmm. But here, you're doing tailwinds. I could argue that the biggest... Um, uh, the biggest headwinds are actually uh, the interest rate. And in fact, that you see things like, you know, Shell and BP yeah. now, you know, being essentially told by their investors just yeah. to generate, um, you know, yield and returns and not to do all this net zero stuff. Yeah. So there are headwinds as well. I suppose, um, you know, we, time will tell, as you say, yeah. and we'll have a lot more information Certainly, by this time next year, the big there's also a big unknown in the energy markets. What happens with um, with the, the you know, Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine that could dramatically change energy prices, and and that brings me actually to sectors. Do you track energy efficiency? Because you know, in a world of um, you know tight corporate budgets yeah. and high energy prices, yeah. are you seeing energy efficiency deals? coming through what are, how is it playing out in a sectoral sense because we saw you know there was sort of even by 2003 4 wind was already big corporates it was it was heavy engineering but yeah. there was solar yeah. and then that kind of fell away and we saw smart grid and then we saw we all saw the ev 
kind of wave of investments, and that's now regarded as basically big corporates. There's yeah. no there's no small startup car companies that are going to get venture funded anymore. What's what's now? What are on the up in terms of sectors? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think the two big bright spots we saw in this H1 were industrials, industry we call it, and built environment, and that's where you see energy efficiency play out. So there's you know industrial energy efficiency at the factory level. There's residential energy efficiency at the building level. Um, I think built environment was a really interesting story where we actually saw funding for that increase 6% over the prior year. A lot of that was driven by the new interest in heat pumps, right? Um, and it's heat pumps as the, you know, heat pumps as a technology, but it's also the how do we deploy heat pumps? Um, so we, we saw initially in, in that prior period, we saw heat, uh, funding for heat pumps go from $6 million to 200 million uh, that we tracked this time around. So all of a sudden, I think the... So I, I'm, I'm slightly, um, I don't know, to blame or to credit for that yeah. because um, I uh, helped through Ecopragma Capital, which mm -hmm. is my advisory boutique that, or mm -hmm. consulting advisory boutique. Um, uh, we helped... Kenza heat pumps to raise, they did a 70 million pound ah, round. Ah, okay, uh, okay. And that's a, um, a low temperature ground source heat pumps, but for dense housing and for tower blocks, yeah. which is very, very interesting. It's a really cool solution or warm solution. <laughs> um, but there's also Gradient. Yes. Gradient was another big heat pump deal. In fact, mm -hmm. I think heat pumps, and there's, I, I see a lot of really interesting innovation around heat pumps, uh, and I'm very excited about that. So uh, there's some great companies coming through um, for the future quarter. I think. Uh, today we're about to put out a, a big Q&A feature with Atmosero, which is doing industrial heat pumps. Although they're very, the atmosphere is quite early, isn't it? I mean, oh, they're yes. still they're still getting sort of ARPA grants to do yeah, their very first prototype. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, so, I mean, I, I think there's some uh, other companies. I can't say too much that are. Uh, but but what's very interesting is um, the industrial high temperature heat pumps. You know, everybody kind of is starting to understand heat pumps for space heating. Yeah. But I I have written that I think that electrification of heat, including industry, mm -hmm. is the next sort of half a trillion dollar annual market mm -hmm. and we're going to see you know heat pumps and other heating electrical heating technologies right across the board yeah. well, so we, i'm very excited about that we have a uh, a taxonomy sector called industrial heat so we'll be tracking that one closely and keep you updated very good i i will i would certainly love to do a, a, a deep dive into that um other things what about um you're also tracking sort of food innovation yeah. uh, how do you define that um, I've just done an incredible uh, episode with Jim Mellon looking at things like precision uh, fermentation and uh, artificial meat or cell cultured meat mm -hmm. do you track all of that as well yeah so we have a and, and maybe if I just take a step back to, to talk a bit about our taxonomy because I think that this can help explain what what exactly we're calling climate tech so we look across seven broad verticals and and that's the usual suspect right energy transportation built environment industry. We also look at food and land use, carbon, and this category called climate management, which is more about uh, monitoring remote sensing. How do you understand uh, what's happening? And then for food specifically, we break that out into a couple different sectors. So under those seven verticals, we look at around 65 sectors that that breaks out into. And then beneath that, 250 technologies. So Food, we're looking at alternative protein. Within that, we'll look at you know plant-based um, uh, uh, fermentation, um, uh, and then we also look at more so ag kind of sectors. So we'll look at uh, uh, regenerative agriculture, um, look at sustainable fertilizers. So that starts to kind of break out into a lot of different sectors. What about adaptation? Where does because that that fits in a lot of these things you talk about yeah. you know restoration of agriculture you know mangrove swamp restoration not really a classic VC sector but adaptation is going to be very very important and there are technological there are VCable opportunities yeah. within adaptation or are there Yeah, that's a good question. So we initially built our taxonomy based off this mental model which I like to use, and so. The first one of that, which I talked a bit about with climate management, we call it monitoring. And that's basically how do we collect all this data on what's happening, right, with our with our environment. You have like satellite intelligence companies like Planet that could fall into that category, uh, the ESG or carbon accounting companies that are tracking this at the emissions level. Then we have mitigation, and, and that's the big piece of the pie we're still, you know, hopefully trying to, to figure out. So that's energy, transportation, built environment, industry kind of fall into that. Uh, and then finally, we have this 
third bucket of, okay, now we need to deal with it, right? It's no longer mitigation and understanding it. We have to deal with it. And within that, we'll look at adaptation and removal solutions. So carbon removal, like direct air capture and things like that as well. Within adaptation specifically, um, we haven't seen too many direct venture plays funding adaptation, but we've seen a lot in climate risk or insurance. Um, and, and that is a form of adaptation in a lot of ways, right? That's financial adaptation. Now we're seeing all these risks that are happening in our ecosystem. How do we better uh, quantify those risks and, and ensure, you know, uh, uh, mitigate those risks through, through climate risk and insurance? Yes, I think there's probably lots of things around early warnings, you know, spotting wildfires using satellite technology, those sorts of things. I mean, they're they're definitely adaptation players. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And um, I mean, it brings me to some of the challenges because I I, sometimes, you know, I'm listening to you and I'm I'm feeling kind of, I'm feeling excited because I love this stuff. That's how I started New Energy Finance. So why would I not? It is hard. There are challenges. But it is hard. And so there's part of me that goes, hmm, I wonder how, so for instance, how do you decide what is a climate deal? We used to get people saying, oh, we are gasifying coal underground. It's fantastic climate deal. I'm like, no, it's not. You're finding a way of extracting basically, you know, uh, you, you may be turning the coal into methane underground and extracting that instead of the actual coal but it's not a climate deal and so we had to kind of fight constantly for what actually is it or you know public transit or Mm -hmm. you know video conferencing or um uh, advanced mobility scooters there you go fantastic micro mobility -mobility, it's a climate (laughs) solution there you go and so how do you deal with it how do you've got your team um and and presumably you know they are all hammering in deals all day every day how do you tell them to distinguish between a climate related yeah. and a not climate related. Yeah. And, and I'm not going to lie to you. This is a battle we do week to week, right? We're putting out these deals of the week and, and we're putting it out publicly so people can see what we're tracking. It's all transparent. Um, I have two kind of responses to this. One is we have a pretty rigid taxonomy. And so we wouldn't go and track, you know, a company in a sector that that isn't in our taxonomy. So every sector we have in our taxonomy has been qualified by our team as saying that there is some sort of mitigation or monitoring or adaptation climate impact here. And then the second one is uh, more of a kind of less of an answer, more of a response to how this space has evolved, right? So initially it might be, you know, are they actually mitigating? You know, is natural gas a climate solution? Now it's a bit more does indirect count as climate tech as well? So if we're looking at, you know, I think the other day we saw this company that was helping media companies better track their missions and, you know, they were positioning themselves as climate and sustainability and they're not even directly doing mitigation. It's more about helping media companies. And and so then it starts to get a bit in the indirect land and, and that starts to get hard too. So I remember how we dealt with this actually. I've had a flashback while you were speaking, yeah. which is that we, it was essentially like a dartboard. In the middle, there's stuff that's just like obviously climate yeah. you know, related. Oh, that's a good way of On the it. Yeah. outside, there's stuff that just like obviously isn't. And yeah. then there's a kind of gray area where they had to come and talk to me. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> and this and is I a would, great call to action. Yeah. If, if you, you think yeah. you're a climate tech, come and, come and talk to us. Yeah, come, come, exactly. Yeah. Um, but there are... Um, you know, we also perhaps coming down the back end of a bubble or of, of a surge of excitement about ESG and tracking, and uh, and there's a kind of view out there that it is possible to answer these questions mm-hmm. using some kind of methodology, some kind of ESG methodology. You know, if we give enough money to, you know, EY, Deloitte, DNV, um, and the, and we've, we, we also sit in enough workshops on the, um, the environmental sustainability, uh, whatever it's called, the e, um, you know, not not FASB, but the equivalent yeah. for um, TCFD. Well, the TCFD. You know, if we if we can kind of um, just grind through enough data, then the answer of what is a climate deal or a climate yeah. technology will sort of drop out. Yeah. And I personally don't believe that. So, are you doing any sort of ESG metrics around these companies, or is it in the end we've got a taxonomy, we understand it, we're just going to tell you yes or no? Yeah, that's a great question. I I, th- I think. Um ESG measurement and climate impact starts to get into pretty hairy, hairy waters. Um, you know, people have dedicated organizations and people have dedicated their lives to tracking this stuff. I think for us, we stick to our climate tech taxonomy and we say, you know, is this because because oftentimes it's it's indirect. You can't say, you know, uh, are they you'd have to forecast really far in advance, like 
what are all these assumptions? You know, what types of companies are they working with? How much can they help them mitigate? And then it's not really a so, fruitful conversation. I'll give you a great example of that. Talking to a battery company, right? And they've got batteries focused on a particular sector. I'm not going to say which one. And they're going to decarbonize it. And it's absolutely fantastic. And it's a climate deal. Yeah. Absolutely, right? Except that what they then discovered was that the second use of that battery was enormous value uh, to the oil and gas industry mm. for, I don't know whether it was submersible tracking of, of whatever, but basically they are now enabling more oil and gas to be extracted. That's the actual impact. So they would have got through any screening as a climate deal, but actually they are probably damaging the climate. I want to I want to touch on this enabling piece a bit more, actually, because I think that's another big trend we saw in the report, which is more climate tech deals getting funded that weren't the the obvious one, the direct decarbonizers, right? Like Rivian, great, they're electrifying vehicles, easy easy climate tech deal. Now we're seeing a lot of these enabling technologies, uh, technologies in, in mining, mining efficiency. Is mining climate tech, right? Mining is a very emissions intensive industry. Now there's uh, now there's a lot of uh, venture interest in how do we enable the energy transition, which is really a metals transition by ensuring, you know, lithium and all these things get extracted uh, at, at larger scale. But then it starts to, again, get into hairy waters where you're like, OK, is increasing mining necessarily climate tech? This is you are you know, we are now kind of like over the target and we'll be getting flack in the comments <laughs> on the social media, no doubt, because, you know, th that is that is. Incredibly challenging. I've just um, made an investment in uh, Magrathia, which takes we them. Yes, they, yeah, absolutely. And they uh, they take magnesium out of salts and seawater, and it's a light metal. It's a light structural metal. It should be reducing the um, improving fuel efficiency for all sorts of things. Fantastic, but it is also an extractive business, and. Is it climate? How, you know, I, I think it is. Um, I think that if something's extracting and refining lithium, yes. But what about if it's uh, making steel more efficient? Well, we use steel for uh, solar farms, for wind farms. Yeah. So we need lots of steel. We need lots of copper. Yeah. Are copper mines climate investments? Yeah, it's, I mean, I think we're starting to see this play out in real time. So we're, we, we put out actually a, a deep dive on steel in December. We're, we're doing more research on that now, especially because green steel is, is all of a sudden sort of a topic du jour, especially in, in industrial steel and cement being the two big emitters. Um, and we're starting to see a lot of these digital optimization plays in steel and cement too. Is, is that climate tech? You know, how do you optimize these processes so you use less energy and and yeah that then you you feel like you're tracking the whole world one one thing that i am sure is that um if you look at technologies that increase the extraction of oil gas and coal those definitely aren't and so efficiency on the fossil fuel extraction side or refining side to my mind should not be in there right and that's controversial because they say well but hang on we're using this stuff surely it's better if it's more efficiently processed to which my answer is the more efficiently you process it extract it or process it the the longer you preserve the life of right. the asset of right. the extract of the extractive asset uh, and therefore the worse for the climate yeah yeah I mean, and then what about, you know, companies that are doing methane, methane leakage and, and, and they're oil and gas companies, but they're also directly reducing emissions? Yeah, so reducing emissions. So those, those it, count. It, yeah. This is just really hard. <laughs> We're going to get into climate philosophy land now. Right, because then I had to work out. So I think capturing methane, removing methane yeah. leaks, um, satellites tracking that, that is climate yeah. tech. But then I had to work out whether that negates the previous right, answer. Right, right. It's very hard. The other thing that's really hard is geography. Because, you know, you've got the US where effectively every deal... Yeah you know, pops up sooner or later, in fact, generally sooner. And you even get a lot of information about the size of the deal, the pre-money valuation sometimes, maybe yeah. not always. But go to, some of this stuff happens in Malaysia, Indonesia, China, yeah. India now coming through as a, as a big uh, generator of technology. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, technology coming out of Africa, out of Latin America. How do you, you're global, yeah. but is your information kind of, equally good everywhere? Yeah, that's a good question. And we'll be candid about this, you know, about 80% of the funding we've tracked comes from North America and Europe. And that's not to say there isn't anything, there isn't a lot happening globally. It's just that there is this, you know, information kind of uh, divide. 
I think a couple a couple points on that. Um, we'll get to China in a second. I think we're seeing actually a lot of activity coming out of places like India and Israel, um, even Singapore. Um, and and this is a hopefully a feature we'll put out soon. I think it's about the funding dollars there, but it's also about the types of sectors and technologies that we're seeing in those areas and how climate tech is kind of similar, but also different. So we're seeing a lot of plays in electric two and three wheelers in India and battery swapping networks that you don't see in the US or Europe. In Singapore, we're seeing a lot of activity in alternative proteins and food because uh, they're equivalent of the USDA essentially uh, essentially allows for cultivated meat. Um, in, in Indonesia and in Africa, we're seeing a lot more of truly distributed and decentralized uh, energy energy uh, networks and build because they're not kind of beholden to a to a massive uh, centralized grid. So it's interesting to see these pockets of climate tech that that we don't you know traditionally classify in the Western markets. But you know clearly, sort of Israel and Singapore look quite kind of U.S. like, yeah. European like in their venture the, the venture industry. But some of those other countries, what you've got a lot more of is um, the sort of big industrial families doing things which does not hit the press, yeah. that the lawyers never talk about yeah. it. I mean, you know, so um, we, I think it's fair to say we missed, and I suspect you miss an enormous amount of activity in those economies because it just doesn't it come doesn't across the captured. radar screens. Yeah. I mean, and, and to, to kind of push, push, push that forward a bit more, I, th I think China has always been an area we want to get better clarity on a lot of that funding comes less in the form of traditional venture private equity deals more in you know state-owned enterprises or um zeker was a big deal that spun out of uh, geely which is a large ev company so so it's less traditional i noticed that that was the biggest deal in the first half and it's and it's just it's just geely it's just a big car company so you know if daimler um, you know, just invest, you know, builds an, uh, you know, an extension to some battery factory and spends 2 billion uh, euros, you wouldn't put that in. But why do you put the Chinese uh, Geely uh, investment in? Yeah, I mean, that one we tracked was, uh, I think uh, there's an equi similar equivalent to that Pol Polestar. Polestar, yep. Volvo. Yeah, and we tracked that as well. And so they're, they're individual. But it's not really venture or growth or anything like that. I mean, it's a, that's, these are just uh, corporate investments. Yeah, I mean, see, th this, is where the, this is where the line starts to get here. No, and 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 I suppose the other thing with China particularly difficult is you. It's very hard to track the state money. You know what you get these kind of entrepreneurs that pop up with yeah. huge hundreds yeah. of millions, even billions, and nobody knows where the money comes from. Some of them are on the world stage, and you know they kind of go mainstream, and you ne still never know where the money came from. Well, it's funny because um, so so I'm Chinese. I'm American born, but Chinese, and and you know when when you talk to Chinese people, for them it's actually the opposite. They're like, we know where all the money is in China. It's hard for us to understand what's happening in the U.S. and in the Western markets. So I think it's almost like, even though we're in a very global society, all the, these markets are still relatively insulated. So funding in, in China, it, it doesn't come through from a tech crunch or a PR newswire, but it's on WeChat. And so I'm, on all, I'm in all these WeChat groups. I, I'm still you know, figuring out how to decipher it. But, but that's where a lot of the funding is coming through. So instead of a Climate Tech VC newsletter, there's a WeChat. Uh, group that's tracking this. So you, you can tell your you know, the, the Chinese clients. You can say, well, it's it's very simple. It all comes from the Princeton uh, endowment, yeah, and uh, yeah. and if you're on I don't know LinkedIn, then you can just read all about it. Yeah. And then the WeChat coming the other direction. Exactly. Um, okay. One criticism of these figures is the sort of the the peril of the average, because these are all sort of. It's, they're actually fractal distributions. Yeah. They're not. They're not normal distributions. If you've got one um, Zika, yeah. then that which was a what was it a five hundred million or it's something like seven fifty yeah. seven fifty million. You know, you can spend all day, or your interns can spend all day logging hundreds of one million, three million, five million seeds yeah. in Series A, and, and so on. One. And then one, and then you say the average investment is down or up because it's 35 million instead of 40 million, whatever, but it's all distorted by this one deal. So how do you deal with that? And I, I you know, I, I know how we dealt with it, but I'm interested in how you're dealing with that kind of the peril of the average just actually being meaningless. Yeah. Are you talking about average round size? Well, if you average round size, yeah. yes. So the average round size, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think how... And, and this stuff happens, right? Well, that's why we're taking the average. It's more of a directional figure than it is than it is like a, a ground truth figure. But we're tracking these big deals at every quarter, at every in every year. So 
I think the fact that these big rounds can happen is also a telltale sign of where we are with the market. So if your data is one to one to one throughout all these years and these big deals start declining, I think that's a telltale sign that the that that part of the market is declining and then you see that play out in average round sizes. So in the H1 report we tracked, we tracked a 40% decline in funding. We tracked a slight increase in deal activity. And so what that tells you is that most of the funding decline has come from that decline in, in those big rounds. So I think, I mean, coming back to I said, I know how we dealt with it, which is keep the information about the distribution and actually sort of look at what proportion comes from. We had these deals we called gorillas, which yeah. were anything over a certain size, 100 million or something. And um, and don't overinterpret averages and trends in averages and, yeah. and, and always ask, well, if this deal wasn't in there, what does it do to the, would it change the report? If it changes the report entirely, whether you know, because you could say that Zika, well, if it's just Geely, maybe it shouldn't be in at all. And then, you know, does it become a catastrophic quarter, but or not? Does it change very much? And but it's really, it's really difficult um, because what you're essentially these are non-normal distributions, and so you you kind of have to you have the richness, the information comes in the richness, not in the headline figure. Very Definitely, often. and that's we also look at it from a deal activity standpoint too, because I think you're seeing a lot more early stage activity now, even more than the prior year. And that, and it's the late stage and, and growth activity that's declined from a deal standpoint. Okay, so that, now this, this is all great. And, and I love what you're doing. And it's really, I mean, I'm really looking forward to, um, you know, particularly that electric um, or the, the heating, the industrialization report and so on. And I can see the value that you get. Well, so once you get kind of smart about all the deals, then you get into the trends. So fantastic. But venture is supposed to be about returns. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, it's about either IRRs or cash-to-cash -cash returns. How is this group of investors doing? Yeah, I think that's a question yet to be determined. Um, so if we say, if we start the clock at 2019 or 2020, right, we're, we're four-ish, three and a half years into this, we put, out a, we put out an exits report at the end of 2022 because that was a question we're trying to answer too. You know, there's this big MIT study after Cleantech 1.0 that said only 10% of Cleantech 1.0 investments actually returned the initial cash invested. And it wasn't even a return. It was just they returned the initial cash invested. So I think that's a big question, especially for new investors coming into this space. What we have seen, though, in that 2020 report, we tracked 300 exits since 2020. Um, so it's not like mainly SPACs, right? 37% were SPACs. I think it was like 50, 60% were acquisitions and the remaining, the remaining, you know, less than 10% were direct IPOs. Um, I think the, the challenge with evaluating the return at this point in time is, is we're kind of halfway through, right? So if you look at the median time to exit for the 300 exits we tracked, it was, it was nine years and we're, if we say the start is around, you know, 2020 or 2019, and, and that's where the majority of these climate tech companies have been funded, uh, it's a bit too early to tell in in in, in their lifetimes of, of will they have a successful return or not. So what's funny about the venture capital industry, and I count myself, I mean, I'm an angel investor, yeah. but I've been a VC and I've, I've been a kind of fellow traveler of the VCs in the data sense. The funny thing about the venture industry is if you, if you took the average group of venture capitalists and you asked what is the kind of key characteristic of the industry, they would say it's full of really smart people. And they are, they can, they're really good at analyzing yeah. this business, this sector, this company, this management team. But of course, the real overwhelming characteristic of the sector is cyclicality. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. You have this group of very smart people who do not understand that the number one characteristic of their own sector is it's cyclical. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, you can see it in the in the charts, right? It's it's always very, very uh, choppy. And it, you, you see these in, in two or three year cycles. I think we've been in a very big cycle for the last five, five or six years in venture driven by these low interest rates. And I think we're starting to see that that come down a bit more. Um, it, it is cyclical. And, and there's definitely, I think venture investors tend to have, um, I don't want to call it a herd mentality, but sometimes a herd mentality, right? You see a deal, you see your you know, favorite investor who you really highly regard, they're in that deal. And you're like, oh, I didn't get in that deal. And you don't even necessarily sometimes worry about the, the, the revenue or the margins. And you're just like, oh, they did that deal. We got to get in the next round. 
the next round or a similar company, a company that kind of looks like a clone. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so then you see these, every year, every quarter, we, we see the kind of like new darling, right, emerge. And I think in 2022, the darling was carbon. The darling was carbon removal, direct air capture, Stripe and Frontier and all these organizations. Uh, but then you look at the voluntary carbon markets and it's like total adjustable market, everyone says is 1 billion. And that's total addressable market for voluntary carbon markets and even carbon removal specifically, majority of which hasn't even, you know, technology wise hasn't even uh, evolved. Uh, so, so yeah, every year you kind of see that darling and you see a lot of interest uh, pour into that one sector or that one technology. I think this time around, uh, there was a few darlings. I think heat pumps was, was kind of the darling this time in, in H1. Um, but yeah, that, that definitely. Is so, so if you go back to um, uh, the sort of previous Super cycle. So, um, 2008, 9, 10, I was actually um, invited by the European climate venture mm. uh, sort of uh, community. They opened their books and they gave uh, access to data um, on returns. So, I actually got data and I know exactly what happened. Um, and uh, it was pretty ugly. So, we got um, this is 2010. The average return minus um, minus six percent IRR, and this was at a time when uh, Cambridge Associates private equity the returns were around twenty two percent, and venture overall was six and a half percent, and climate clean energy was doing uh, negative numbers, and um, cutting it a different way, the best venture in investors in climate actually were returning. There were positive returns. Mm -hmm. That's the good news. Mm -hmm. um, so the top quartile was producing about a 6% IRR. Mm -hmm. This is back in 2010. And the uh, second quartile was neither creating value nor destroying it. I suppose mm -hmm. that also is regarded as good news. The third quartile uh, was destroying value. And the fourth quartile was obliterating value. And I guess I just look at it and I see people investing in stuff that they frankly don't understand. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the carbon removal stuff, I mean, you have people investing it who haven't got the first idea about the thermodynamics of pulling, you know, CO2 out of the air at, you know, 400 parts per million. They don't understand the work required. They don't understand how much air you have to move to do that. They don't understand the structure of the industry that then has the pipelines to go off and put that somewhere or do something with it. And, uh, and I just see this kind of, not just in the, um, not just in, in direct, you know, direct carbon removal, but in lots, you know, a lot of the investment on, on the hydrogen front, I just see it as being buzzword investing mm -hmm. uh, by hundreds and hundreds of investors who really should not be allowed out alone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I, I, I don't disagree with that. I think that was kind of what we saw in clean tech 1.02 was a lot of tourist investors coming into the space who hadn't previously, you know, uh, been in energy understood how this hard infrastructure stuff works. The slight change we're seeing this time around is I do think a lot of these tourist investors, and not all of them, but a lot of them are hesitant to come into what they deem as climate hard tech or hardware because they've seen what happened in clean tech 1.0. They've seen the long lifetimes uh, of these companies. But, but then what they do, so they don't want to do the, I love the word, uh, the tourist investor. I mean, yeah. you know, and I, I'm thinking of, of course, you know, the most famous one was John Doerr back in 2007 with his famous Ted talk and crying about the climate and so on. Does he qualify? Um, but, but if they're not going to do hard tech, then they all chase the same digital tech. They're yeah. all trying to do, you know, how do you do machine learning in climate? And they're all going to do, how do you do data and sensors and yeah. satellite tracking and, 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 and uh, uh, ESG and risk yeah. um, software and insurance products and, and so on. So they're all going to chase the same deals. They're going to overpay or they have already overpaid yeah. for them. And then we'll go through sort of some years where there'll be lots of sort of zombie businesses and then the whole series of horrible exits. I mean, isn't that what the future looks like? I think the key here is less so bifurcating between pure play software and pure play deep tech, which is historically felt like where there's been a lot of, you know, uh, not conflict, but there's been a lot of, are you only hardware or are you only software? I feel like the sweet spot here is a hybrid. And so when you think about climate tech, it doesn't just have to be super long duration energy storage. It doesn't just have to be, you know, all these novel electrolyzers. It can be 
solar panels, you know, are commercial now. How do we get them deployed in as many houses as possible and as many continents as possible? And that's a hybrid approach where it's not pure play software. It's not just, you know, you go out and use my design optimization software. It's you need installers. You need, you know, a business that can uh, acquire and install these panels, but then you need software to enable it. So I think that will be where we see a lot of successful climate tech companies play. And you look at, you know, Sunrun and, and some of these big clean tech exits too, and, and that's where they've had success. Um, y- yes, and I suppose what's been what was interesting coming out of this kind of um, the last cycle, yeah. and I do think there's a lot of parallels with where we are today with that kind of 2010 mm-hmm. period in terms of the cyclicality of the venture space. But what we also saw was some extraordinarily extraordinarily good companies built. You know, Tesla, prime example, um, that, um, you know, and it was a pl- it was kind of software plus manufacturing plus yeah. battery plus, you know, putting everything together, an integration play in many ways. Um, and um, and so we definitely saw that. And we saw that actually also coming out of the dot-com boom bust where, you know, suddenly there's Google and there's Facebook. And, yeah. you know, th- so um, so there's definitely, there is definitely an opportunity. There, not, not everything will be catastrophic, but I th- do think quite a bit of it will be. And I think that's... Uh... One one more thing I want to pull on, which we talk about a lot about, is yes, you know, there's definitely parallels to clean tech 1.0. I think one of the key differences is is it feels like climate tech is a lot uh, is is very broad now, and we're seeing a lot of talent come in. That's no longer you know oh, it's hundred percent, hundred percent. The average clean tech uh, entrepreneur or climate tech entrepreneur is a world more sophisticated and able to lead a business than back in two thousand and six, seven, eight, nine, ten. No question, absolutely no question. Yeah. And, and it's founder talent. It's, you know, people who have built really successful businesses in, in Silicon Valley and things like that. But it's also engineering talent. It's, you know, you go to a, any business school now, 90% of them all want to work in climate tech. And so you're seeing all different types of talent uh, who want to build in climate tech, who want to who want to uh, build both in hybrid and software and hard tech. And I want to just open up a final topic, um, which is if you go back to previous episodes of cleaning up uh, this question of um, venture and tech. Uh, We've had quite a few episodes. So we had episode 18 quite early on, which would have been about uh, 2020. Yes, I think it was still 2020. uh, Nancy Fund, who was one of the earliest investors in Tesla. Um, Beverly Gower Jones, that's the clean growth fund in the UK, raised uh, over 100 million pounds for investment in the space. Gina Demarnik out of um, Zurich, episode 47, uh, Emerald Technology Ventures, now got over a billion uh, euros under management. Uh, Emily Kirsch, episode 127, which was quite recent, um, with Powerhouse. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and so the, and now, you know, yourself, um, the, the audience would be forgiven for believing that only women get to be uh, climate. <laughs> You've tech. just done a great job on on uh, on getting getting great women on your podcast. What's the reality out there? I mean, if you look at broader venture capital, it's 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 not great, right? I think the the stat is you know two or three percent, maybe it's up to four percent now of uh, there being female partners at venture firms. Um, I don't know if anyone has done a good. I mean, maybe this is our, our next thing. We know. I don't think anyone's done a great job of tracking uh, female VCs in climate tech specifically. But I can say anecdotally, you know, going to conferences, going to these events, um, a lot of these networking events. Uh, at least I I've seen a lot more more women in this space, both from the venture perspective, but also from the founder perspective. Um, and I think. Uh, lot of hypotheses on why that might be, but I think I think climate specifically, you do tend to see a stronger kind of presence of women. It's still the minority, but I, it feels more like a ten to twenty percent rather than. Right. So two. the number the numbers in venture overall in the U.S. are um, something like hang on, I've got it here. Women only founded teams, um, seven point two percent of deals, one point nine percent of capital. I mean, just terrible. And in terms of uh, the venture industry itself, uh, 8.6% of all venture capitalists, only 5% of venture firms have got a woman partner or a woman on the executive committee. I mean, it's just, it's just terrible. So you're saying it, it feels like 20% in climate. So better. You don't feel quite as lonely as, as that. I mean, I can, I can give a couple of really great examples of women 
uh, women-led G- uh, women GPs in, in climate tech. So my co-founder, Sophie, she just launched a, a climate tech fund called Planeteer Capital. It's her and this other amazing woman, Hannah, that's running it. Obviously, Emily Kirsch at Powerhouse, Don Lippert, who's an angel investor in, in us, CTVC, at Elemental Accelerator, now uh, spinning out a venture fund called Earthshot. Uh, Sierra and Sarah, who run Voyager Ventures with uh, Nat Ballard. From from PNF days, so so there's a lot of really good examples I think of and, women GPs and the women space. founders are not just doing sort of services or, or whatever they're actually getting really stuck into that. The deep tech is actually um, also you know reasonably diverse, right? Yeah, definitely. So I mean, a, a couple off the top of my head, Leah Ellis. Sublime Systems, they're creating a, a novel cement, which is definitely deep tech. Uh, we had Jennifer uh, Holmgren from Lanzatech, yeah. uh, you know, absolutely one of the original gangster women deep tech Original gangster right? women, yeah. OGs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So definitely, definitely seeing yeah. a, a lot. So that's a positive uh, development. And obviously, you know, this is something that we need to keep I, we, I need to keep raising it on these podcasts and we need to keep pushing it because uh, we need to, we just need so many, you know, we need the role models and we need to keep progress uh, and diversity, not just around gender, but also under other underrepresented uh, groups. It's quite clear. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Thank you so much. Um, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Uh, I've had all sorts of flashbacks to the <laughs> sorts of challenges I was dealing with nearly 20 years ago. I wish you luck. We should chat more about it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Michael. Super excited. And yeah, really excited to see what you're doing with cleaning up. And uh, good luck with the uh, second half tracking all those deals. Uh, we'll keep you updated. <laughs> very good. I look forward to it. Awesome. Thank you so much. So that was Kim Zo, CEO and co-founder of Climate Tech VC, the climate and innovation newsletter and data provider. As always, you'll find links in the show notes to the episodes mentioned during today's conversation. So that's Nancy Fund, episode 18, Beverly Gower-Jones, episode 27, Gina Demarnig, episode 47, and Emily Kirsch, episode 127. You'll also find links in the show notes to some of the reports to which we referred. That's Climate Tech VC's funding update for the first half year of 2023, and some of the early publications of New Energy Finance focused on venture investing through the period of the first cleantech bubble. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, please remember to like, share, and subscribe to Cleaning Up, or leave us a review on your chosen podcast platform. And if you want more from Cleaning Up, sign up for our free newsletter at cleaningup.live where you'll find our archive of over 150 hours of conversation with extraordinary climate leaders. And why not help someone else learn more about the net zero transition by introducing them to Cleaning Up? Cleaning Up is brought to you by our lead supporter, Capricorn Investment Group, the Liebreich Foundation, and the Gilardini Foundation.